ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And also with Ginny Smith. We're here at the Cambridge Science Centre where we're recording this programme this week. This week, we're stepping back in time to explore the Great Plague and the fire that followed it, devastating London in the 17th century. We'll be looking at the bug that caused the plague and how modern science has allowed us to understand it better, as well as asking whether we can learn anything from history that could help us tackle the modern-day plagues that still exist around the world. During our time-travelling adventure, we're going to be guided by the diaries of Samuel Pepys. Now, he was a Cambridge graduate, actually, who had a very important job overseeing provisions for the Royal Navy. His diaries show us firsthand what it was like to be alive in 17th-century London, and that's going to be read for us by Marcus Martin. Picture the scene. It's 1665 and London is a bustling, crowded metropolis. The cobbled streets, slippery with animal dung and slops, are narrow and full of people, and the stench of rotten food and sewage fills the air. Increasing numbers of people begin to fall ill with a disease known as the Black Death and feared above any other. Pepys writes... April 30th, 1665. Great fears of sickness here in the city... It being said that two or three houses are already shut up. God preserve us all. June 7th, 1665. This day, much against my will, I did in Drury Lane see two or three houses marked with a red cross upon the doors, and Lord have mercy upon us writ there, which was a sad sight to me, being the first of that kind that to my remembrance I ever saw. It put me into an ill conception of myself and my smell, so that I was forced to buy some roll tobacco to smell and to chore, which took away the apprehension. So why were the houses of plague victims marked up with these red crosses on their doors? And why did Samuel Pepys feel less afraid after he bought some tobacco? Well, Michelle Wallace is a PhD student and she's here in Cambridge studying the history of medicine. Tell us a bit about the scene as it would have been at the time when Pepys was writing. Well, first of all, the Red Crosses were a big thing. You would look around your parish because this thing was sort of administered on a parish level and you would see the houses of your neighbours shut up and you could see them in there having food passed in and know that they were dying and you would remember the last plague of 17 years before and you would see the dead carried out and just the atmosphere of fear and everybody who could leave doing so and leaving you behind. But what was it actually like in London at that time? How many people lived in 
the average house? What were conditions like to live in? For the poorer sort of people, lots and lots of overcrowding. And that was probably something that absolutely contributed to the plague. You would have large families um, pushed into very, very small dwellings. And when someone did die, what provisions were made for dealing with dead bodies? Not sufficient ones. Basically, again, that was handled on the parish level. And so basically, once your parish gravedigger caught the plague, or the clerks who record the death and the people who pick up the bodies, you just end up getting piles and piles of corpses that, instead of being buried properly, might be thrown into a large pit with a small sprinkling of lime over them and they wait for the next one. People in those times, though, had no concept of what disease really was, what caused disease or caused disease to spread. So did they regard these bodies as an infectious disease threat or, or did they think the, only the living person was a disease threat? They absolutely regarded them as a threat. They had very different ideas about what caused disease, but they absolutely had an idea of contagion. They just thought of the contagious thing rather than being a bacteria, as we think of it, as a bad air. And if you think about it, Corpses produce quite a lot of bad air, so they were definitely seen as being a problem. So what was their concept then of of what these bad airs were and how they spread and how the plague was getting around? Well, they were exhaled by people. You took them in through the pores of your skin. Um, So that's why you would smoke tobacco, because that's a nice, sweet-smelling, strong-smelling thing that protects where you breathe. It's not just the people who had the plague who were shutting up their houses. People would voluntarily not nail the doors shut, obviously, but keep all their doors and windows closed, light large fires, throw sweet-smelling things like herbs on those fires. And basically, if you saw like an object that you thought might be um, infected with plague, there's a great one in Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year, but there's a pocket watch they think was dropped by a plague victim and um, they blow it up with gunpowder. Wow. (laughs) Timely. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There were also reports of people doing things like, I mean, they regarded anything that someone had touched as potentially infectious, didn't they? They would make people pass money through pots of vinegar or acid and things to, to cleanse it. Yes, absolutely. So you can't think of a miasma just as air in the way that we think of air. Miasma is the, the stink that you're yeah, referring the, to. Yeah, the, the, the bad air is what you would refer to as a miasma. But think of it as particles that cling to things. So, um, for instance, they also, also definitely had a concept of it being transferred in cloth. Cloth is something that is often seen as as a transmitter of plague, and yes, money, absolutely. And so they would burn the belongings of people who died of plague. Were there any doctors around who who did epidemiology, the the science of actually looking at how things spread around? Was anyone trying to work out at the time, for academic or other reasons, what was going on? So to me, there's two questions there, because epidemiology today is very much a question of statistics. And they were obsessed with the statistics of the Black Death. Plastered up on walls everywhere you looked would be posters that included the number of people who had been shut up or had died of plague. So people were writing that down? Oh, absolutely. We have very, very good records of that, you know, up until the point the parish clerk starts dying. Um, But this was something that people were very interested in. So not just the statistics of the current plague, but you would have in very, very cheap print that was put up on the walls everywhere and handed out in the streets, you would have lists of the statistics for the last plague, for a plague that happened in the time of Queen Elizabeth. And then the question of physicians, what are physicians doing? Well, lots of things. And 1665 is very interesting because, you know, there's been lots and lots of plagues in England before. But by this point, there are a couple of different strands of medicine kind of fighting for dominance in London. And there's 
the established Royal College of Physicians who practice what we call Galenic medicine, which is about balance. And we have the Society of Chemical Physicians, which is a little bit different, and they're both trying to get you to take their drugs and use their methods. Sounds like today. Yeah, a little bit like that. <laughs> I bet posting all these plague numbers on walls did wonders for morale. Well, it did when they started dropping. Um, so it's all about information. If you feel informed, you feel in control. Is this why we have such a good insight into the history that you're relating to us, because we've got those records? Yes, absolutely. We don't just have the records kept by the parishes themselves, but they were all collated at a central point every day. And we have that in, in huge numbers. So we know exactly you know, where the first plague case was in each outbreak, which parishes spread through first, which is how we can see how it fits with you know, overcrowding, poorer areas, bad sanitation. Not that anywhere in London had good sanitation at this time, but yes. Thank you very much, Michelle. Stay there because Ginny has got a little game in mind for us now. Ginny, what are you going to do? Well, now you know a little bit about how doctors tried to treat the plague and how people believed it spread, we're going to play a game of cause or cure. So I've got some items here on the table and what I want you guys to do is have a guess as to whether you thought that this item is something that back then they believed could cause the plague or at least make you more likely to get it, or whether it's something that they thought could cure the plague or prevent you getting it if you didn't have it yet. What should we ask them about first? So hard to choose. Um, Should we start with this one? Okay, so what we've got here is a pair of ballet shoes, and that represents dancing, dancing and leaping. I'm going to ask you if you think it's a cause or a cure, and I want you to cheer for which one you think it is. So who thinks it's a cause? And who thinks it's a cure? Yeah, now that's interesting. Well, I guess dancing, leaping, exercise, it's quite a healthy thing we think of now. What did they think back then? They thought it opened the pores of your skin and let the plague in. So you're all wrong. Sorry. So no dancing if you want to stay safe from the plague. Now, next, I've got a lovely bunch of rosemary, which I picked from my garden this morning. So who thinks that's a cause? And who thinks rosemary could be a cure? So that's a very strong-smelling herb, so I guess that was to prevent the miasmas from getting to you. Yeah, and absolutely, it's a very popular one to burn inside your house. So there were loads of different herbs that they thought were curative or preventative, at least. Um, What should we go for next? This is a slightly suspect-looking little vial of a sort of yellowish liquid. Can anyone guess what that might be? Urine, yes. Well, it's not. It's apple juice. But for, for, the, for the sake of today, we're going to say that's urine. It's actually special urine. It's urine from a healthy male virgin. So who thinks that could be a cause of the plague? No. Who thinks it could be a cure? Yeah. So what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, you're supposed to mix it with Venice treacle, which is a very expensive ingredient, and it's not actually treacle. Um, it also involves viper flesh, for instance, and with another sort of plague water, and then you drink it often. Anyone fancy trying it? <laughs> no? No takers? Um, what about some strawberries? They look a bit tastier. Who thinks they could be a cause? Yeah. Yeah. Who thinks they could be a cure? Oh, split about 50-50 on that one. So who's right? They are a cause. You should abstain from sweet fruits. If you must eat fruit, go for the sour ones. Smiley face. 
So this is representing happiness. Who thinks happiness will be a cause of the plague? Oh, not sure on that one. Who thinks it'll be a cure? What's the answer? Yes, you should try and keep happy, you know, as your friends and relatives are dying around you. (laughs) So, on the contrary, sadness was seen as if you're sad, you're more likely to get the plague. Yes, absolutely. If you're sad, if you're melancholy, that's bad for your balance and you might die of the plague. Now, this is an interesting one. What I've got here is a collection of feathers. They're quite brightly coloured feathers, so they're not necessarily a normal chicken, but they are to represent a plucked chicken or pigeon. Preferably pigeon. Preferably pigeon. So who thinks a plucked chicken could be a cause of the plague? And who thinks it could be a cure for the plague? We're about 50-50 again on that one. It's a cure. The question is, where is it plucked? And what do you do with it? You take a pigeon, for preference, and you pluck the feathers out around its bum and you put it, bare bum side down, on whatever blotches, whatever buboes, whatever swellings you have, whether they're in your neck, your armpit or your groin, and you leave it there for a while and it's supposed to draw the poison out. And so then basically you remove said bare bummed pigeon and hope that it dies because if it dies... That means it's taken all the poison out. And if it doesn't die? Yeah, it's not good for you. (laughs) Poor pigeon. Yeah, well, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) And one final one. God. Who thinks God is a cause of the plague? And who thinks God was a cure for the plague? Well, you're all right. Everything was put down to God. Absolutely. They, they went into all the stuff about bad airs and so on and so forth. But ultimately, you had to start praying. Fantastic. Thanks, Michelle. And well done, everyone. I think you all could probably go out now and be early modern doctors if you wanted to be. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. And this week we're looking at the Great Plague of 1665. Unfortunately, despite people's best efforts to contain it, the plague continued to spread through the summer of 1665, and the number killed by it continued to rise. The rich, including the king and parliament, fled to the countryside, but poorer members of society didn't have that option. Pepys described what came to be a common sight in London. August 16th, 1665. It was dark before I could get home, and so land at churchyard stairs, where to my great trouble I met a dead corpse of the Great Plague in the narrow alley, just bringing down a little pair of stairs. But I thank God I was not much disturbed at it. However, I shall beware of being late abroad again. August 31st, 1665. Thus this month ends with great sadness upon the public through the greatness of the plague... Everywhere through the kingdom, almost. Every day sadder and sadder news of its increase. In the city died this week 6,102 of the plague. But it is feared that the true number of the dead this week is near 10,000, partly from the poor that cannot be taken notice of through the greatness of the number, and partly from the Quakers and others that will not have any bell ring for them. 
Luckily, we now understand quite a bit more about the plague than Pepys and his contemporaries did, including things that cause and cure it. Um, We think it was caused by a bacterium called Yersinia pestis, but how can we go about studying an outbreak that happened over 300 years ago? Luke Bedford is a clinical microbiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. We'll come to him in a second. And Julian Parkhill works at the Sanger Institute. That's also in Cambridge. And that's where a large part of the human genome was decoded. Now, Julian's using the same technology to read the DNA recovered from victims of the plague, and that includes the DNA signature of the bugs that killed them. So, Julian, let's begin with you. Where do you get victims of the Black Death? We heard earlier that you uh, often put plague victims into plague pits. We can recognise plague pits as large assemblages of corpses in the right time, and uh, we can carbon date those corpses and work out when when they died. We can then extract the DNA from those bodies or from those bones and uh, identify the plague DNA inside them. So these bodies are still in London in big numbers and can be excavated? Yes, definitely. Um, We saw recently with the crossrail excavations that they came across a large plague pit and had large numbers of bodies from the plague. So they're underneath us all the time, yes. What sorts of tissues do you take from those bodies in order to get DNA from them? Because there's not much left. I mean, they're just skeletons, aren't they? Actually, the best place to get plague DNA is from inside teeth. The pulp of the teeth is where the blood collects, and plague grows to very, very large numbers in the blood. So there's some plague DNA left inside the teeth, and it's kept protected from the rest of the soil, and it's possible to get the DNA out from inside the teeth. So archaeologists come along, well, Crossrail come along, they dig up some bodies. Archaeologists come along, they get some bits of those bodies, they get teeth, they drill holes in them, rather like the dentist, and get DNA from what the person plus the the bug that they died from. That's your, that's your interpretation, isn't it? The bug they died from is, is in there, and you can, you can then extract the DNA to study it. Yeah, the bug they died from is in there, but there's also an enormous amount of other DNA, bits of, bits of their DNA, bits of um, soil bacteria, mostly modern soil bacteria. So you have to know what you're looking for, and you have to go and fish it out. If you know from modern sequences, from modern DNA, what plague DNA looks like, you can go and pull out those bits of DNA directly from the, from the mixture that's in that, that tooth. Ah, so that's how you did it. You had an idea that this could have been Yersinia pestis, this bacterium that could have been linked to the plague. And you said, well, if that was the cause, then the genetic signature of Yersinia pestis might be in the DNA extracted from these teeth. And hey, presto, you go looking and it's there. Yes, so this was first done by a group in Germany, and not actually at the Sanger, but that's exactly what they did. They said, we believe that this may have been caused by Yersinia pestis. These were victims of the plague. Can we go and find Yersinia pestis DNA in there? And they did, yes. Now we actually have an idea that it really was Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that caused the plague. Let's find out from Luke what this bug actually is. So paint a picture of Yersinia for us. Yersinia pestis is a a single-celled organism, a bacterium. Primarily, they live in fleas and rodents, and that's how they spread around in the wild, so to speak. And they they do that by taking blood meals from rodents uh, and other mammals, and then when they take another blood meal, they regurgitate. The the bacteria actually makes them regurgitate through a, a set of genes that it's got over into the wounds that they've just created, and that's how you tend to get spread from 
person to person it can do and from animal to person and animal to animal with the reservoirs in the wild. And from there it can travel and and start to cause disease. Once it gets inside the body, it starts to to develop, it changes the proteins that it makes and becomes resistant to a certain extent to the body's mechanisms of fighting off the phagocytes and other immune cells. It then travels to the lymph nodes. And this is where we see the clinical picture of bubonic played from. Because you get these massive, enlarged, painful, tender lymph nodes in the These are your brain. glands, aren't they? Yeah, when you, when you feel your glands raise, it's because you might have a bit of an infection. But when you've got bubonic plague, they're huge, they're painful, and they're very nasty. Is that because the, the bug has gone from the bite? It's, it's replicating or growing at the wound site, and then it's spreading through the body to those glands or lymph nodes, and then causing them to swell up. Is that the reason? Absolutely. They they sort of hitch a ride, so to speak, in the immune cells of the body and get carried and concentrated in those lymph nodes. So the immune system sort of helps it around the body. Yeah, the Yersinia pestis bacteria have got a, a, a way of, of protecting themselves from the immune system of the body, from these phagocytes that ingest them. And from there, they have a, a capacity to then be carried into these lymph nodes where they can multiply and from then on spread through the blood into other parts of the body as well. And once you've got that condition, is it curtains for you? I mean, what happens? How does it make the person ill? It makes the person ill by doing a few things. In the blood, it produces all sorts of of proteins and enzymes. And what it can do is make your blood very thick and and coagulable. And what happens is when that affects the distal parts of your body, your fingers and toes, the small arteries in there, you get gangrene, which is where we get some of the terminology. Black death. death. Because these bits are going to go black and drop off, aren't they? So that's septicemic plague. And the other type, of course, is pneumonic plague, which is what we imagine with these coughing, sort of pestilent plague victims who, who are wandering around. And that is very bad news as well. So that's the plague in your lungs, and you can cough it out. You don't need a flea. You can cough it out, and if I cough on Julian, he's going to catch it. Yeah, it's, it's much less likely to... Well, at least there's a lot less cases, particularly these days, of primary pneumonic plague, which is where it spreads like that, but it does happen. Does that mean, then, that once you've got your fleas giving some people plague, then people can give it to each other via that aerosol route? So it can start off as that bubonic plague from a flea bite, but then other cases can occur with the spread via the respiratory route. Yeah, absolutely. So that that can be another mechanism by where it spreads. And I guess perhaps in older times you would get more, because there were so many fleas about, you would still get a lot of transmission. But these days, with less of a flea population in in people, we assume, uh, depending on what the population is, of course, you're going to get more pneumonic spread. Can it be treated? Yes, there's many effective antibiotics um, available. Um, And actually, if you catch bubonic plague now, you've got a pretty good chance of surviving. Around about 10% of people who have plague these days, we think, die. But obviously, case ascertainment where you have most of the plague is sometimes quite difficult. How many cases are there today? In the UK, there's none. We haven't had any cases, I believe, since the 1930s in the UK. You still do get cases in the west of America, for example, and sub-Saharan Africa. But generally, we're talking about a couple of thousand a year, I believe. So nothing on the scale of what happened in the 1600s during the Black Death? Uh, No. So, Julian, what can you tell us about your genetic investigations then? What did you find when you studied the DNA of the plague victims that you've said they had Yersinia there. Is it the same bug that Luke is describing is still causing cases today? Yes, so when we first sequenced Yersinia, when we first generated the genome of Yersinia, it was actually with a modern strain rather than an ancient one. And what we were able to see 
was how this organism had evolved. It's a very recent organism, so we're, we're talking about the plague in, in, in the 1600s, but plague probably evolved only a few thousand years ago, and it used to be an organism called Yersinia pseudotuberculosis. And Yersinia pseudotuberculosis causes enteritis, a kind of diarrheal disease in humans. It's a mild disease. And it also causes a diarrheal disease in fleas. So it infects mammals like rodents, and it infects fleas. Mind boggles at the prospect of a flea with diarrhoea, but uh, <laughs> do go on. A very, a very careful experiment, I think you have to do that. <laughs> so what Yersinia pestis did was it, it found a way to jump to, to change from going through a faecal-oral diarrheal route in fleas and a faecal-oral diarrheal route in mammals to suddenly connecting the two. And it only required one or two extra genes to do that. And if you look in the genome, if you look at all the genes it's got, then it's got all the genes that it needs to cause the disease that we know about now. It's still got all the genes in there uh, that it used to use to cause diarrhoea in fleas and that it used to cause diarrhoea in humans. And they're still all there. They're just knocked out. They're inactivated. So by looking at the genome, you can understand how it evolved, where it came from, and how it changed. Can you answer the big question, which is probably the crucial one, though, which is if it's so similar today to the strain that was causing the Black Death, why did so many people die in the 1600s, yet today it's only a handful? No, unfortunately we can't answer that question. We can, we can study very large numbers of plague organisms now and we can look at the diversity of plague and we can use that to reconstruct um, where it comes from. And it's very clear that plague is endemic, it's common in China and it circulates in rodents and, and around there in China. And it has come out of China and caused at least three plagues, the Justinian plague before the one we're talking about, the Black Death and then another plague in the 19th century. So it's continuously evolving in China. Uh, and it's come out of China multiple times to cause pandemics. Now, because of the way that the ancient DNA was sequenced, because the people who did that took what we know about plague now and used it to fish out what was there, we can't say that there wasn't anything new, anything we don't know about. We can find out what we know about. We can't say there isn't anything in that genome in the ancient plague that we didn't know about. But it looks very much like it's the same organism causing the same disease. So there might still be something else that was in circulation at the same time. We'll just have to wait and see, I suppose. Julian Parkhill from the Sanger Institute and Luke Bedford from Addenbrooke's Hospital. Thank you both very much. One theory is that the Black Death in 1665 spread so rapidly because this pneumonic version became more prevalent. And as you've probably experienced with colds and flu and that sort of thing... Things that spread by coughs and sneezes spread very quickly and very easily through homes and through schools. And that's because when you sneeze, the amount of virus or bacteria that's coming out of you is huge and it can go quite a distance. So I've got a slightly, well, hopefully not too disgusting because I'm not actually going to be sneezing. But what we're going to do now is recreate some sneezes using this spray bottle and look at how you might be able to stop them spreading. So I'm going to need someone to come up and do the sneezing for me. Who wants to do that? What's your name? Peo. Peo, great. If you just hold that bottle for me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a big sheet of paper out on the floor. Don't squeeze it yet and not when it's pointed at me, okay? Okay, so I've got a big sheet of paper here on the floor. If you sort of crouch down for me and put the bottle right at the edge of the paper... And then when I say go, I want you to give it one nice big squeeze and we'll see how far the droplets go. Okay, ready? Three, two, one, go. Can you see the droplets on the paper? Yes. So how far have they gone? 
almost all the way to the end. In fact, I can see a tiny drop just at the end. OK, so we've got about a metre and a bit of paper there, and the droplets have gone quite a long way. And what's interesting is you can also see that there are some big droplets and there are some really tiny little droplets. And that's the same with a real sneeze. There are the kind of big globules of spit and snot that come out that you might be able to see. But you're actually spraying out tons of tiny weeny particles. And there was some um, research that came out a little while ago that actually said that we used to think they could go, you know, maybe a few metres. But these tiny little particles can actually get picked up by air currents and go a lot further, 200 times further than we previously thought. And that's far enough to infect everyone in this room, definitely. So what can you do when you sneeze to try and stop yourself from infecting other people? You could cover your nose. You can cover your nose and mouth, exactly. So that's what we're going to try next. So we've turned the paper over, so we've got a clean side, and we're going to try covering it with my hand. So that's what a lot of people do when they sneeze, isn't it? You put your hand in front of your mouth. So I'm going to put my hand, where do you put it? Kind of a few centimetres in front of your nose. And then I'm going to count down again. I want you to spray. And do you think we're going to, do you think I'm going to block all of it? Or do you think we'll see some of it on the paper? I think we'll see some. Let's have a look, shall we? Here we go. Three, two, one, go. There's a lot of purple dye on my hand. So I did manage to block quite a lot of it. What can you see on the paper? There are a few tiny droplets in the middle of the paper. At least it didn't reach the end this time. That's true. So it's, it's better, isn't it? A lot of the big droplets I've caught. But if you look closely, there's actually quite a lot of the tiny, weeny little droplets that have got through. And also, now have a think about what's on my hand. <laughs> what am I going to do now? When you've sneezed, do you always go and wash your hands straight away? Or do you sometimes pick up a pen? Or go and shake hands with someone. Would you want to shake hands with me after that? No. My mummy always says that if we sneeze or cough into by our elbow, then we won't put it on our hand and it's less likely to spread. Exactly, because how often do you pick up a pen with your elbow? <laughs> Not very often. So actually, that is the, now what people suggest, that you sneeze into the sort of crook of your elbow, the, the inside of your arm. And what that'll do is it'll make it less likely that you pass on the disease. The other thing you can do is you can use a tissue. And a tissue is a bit bigger than your hand. So we're going to try that now. Last try. And I've got another clean sheet of paper. And this time, we're going to put the tissue right in front of the spray bottle and see what that does. Ready, Pay? Three, two, one. How's my paper looking? Completely white. And the tissue's looking very purple. There's a big, gross purple splodge on the tissue. But I can see... Oh, there's one tiny, weeny drop there. But I think that's it. So tissues are great because now what I can do is just ball that up, chuck it in the bin and the infection's gone. If you don't have a tissue, crook of your arm is the next best thing because you really, you don't want to be sneezing on your hand because you use your hands a lot. But this just shows quite how fast sneezes can spread. And it's not really surprising that if you had lots of people living in cramped conditions sneezing on each other, it didn't go well. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Ginny Smith. Coming up in the next 25 minutes, how the Great Fire of London changed the face of the city forever and why working in a bakery can be an extremely dangerous job. 
Ginny will be doing some detonation later on. But first, a look at modern-day plagues. Unfortunately, while Yersinia pestis may now be more or less under control, there are other diseases that threaten to have similarly devastating effects, particularly in developing areas which have the same overcrowding and sanitation issues London faced in the 17th century. One modern plague that's been in the headlines a lot lately is Ebola. And Kevin Wing, who works at the Cambridge University Department of Medicine and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, has recently spent time working at an Ebola treatment centre in Sierra Leone. Hello, Kevin. So why is Ebola such a problem in Africa? In the, uh, the recent outbreak, the key point was that the countries where it was especially bad had very weak health systems. So the infrastructure that was there was not able to cope with such an outbreak in any way. And that's the crux of it, because you've just got a very poor country, very poor health services, and there's a big opportunity for diseases to just escape. Well, I think if you look at some of the other countries that Ebola did go to, apart from Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia you can see that there was only ever a few cases in those other countries. So, for example, I think Mali had two cases and there was one case in Nigeria. And the reason that it didn't spread in the same way was because those countries had health systems that were more able to cope. Your feeling then is that if we look at what happened with Ebola in countries like Sierra Leone, this is a pretty good proxy of what was probably going on in London to an extent during things like the Black Death. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when Ebola hit Sierra Leone, for example, there was... A real problem, in fact, there still is, in actually persuading a lot of Sierra Leoneans that Ebola was real. Obviously, the coverage that we get in the media here, that sounds incredible, but it really was a problem where you've got culturally and very sort of ingrained practices and beliefs and also suspicion of people coming in and sort of dictating. So it was a very, very sensitive management at the beginning of the, of the outbreak. People have done analyses of what they think the recipe is behind the sort of disaster that was Ebola. Because we first discovered Ebola more than 40 years ago. And in the entire time since then, it's killed fewer people than it did in this one outbreak. So people are obviously asking, why here, why now, why has Ebola done this? Some have suggested, actually, it's because of population. There are more people around and there are more mobile people around. Yeah, well, I think, again, taking Sierra Leone as an example, when it entered the country, there was an initial, I think it was actually a funeral of a traditional healer. And from that one funeral, there was something like 300 cases. And then it spread across rural areas relatively quickly. And it was very difficult to trace in those rural areas. But the big concern was that what would happen when it got to the capital Freetown. And in fact, it was in Freetown where there's a very high density of housing and, and people living in close quarters, that it really exploded and there's a huge number of cases came from the capital. This week, at the beginning, we were hearing about things that people believed were causes and cures of the original plague, Yersinia pestis. Ebola's obviously a virus, it's a little bit different, but are people similarly misinformed in Africa and that's part of the problem with dealing with how you stop it? Well, I think at the, at the beginning of the outbreak, there was, it was very difficult to get, to get the communication across. In fact, it was the rainy season, for example, and you know, being able to set up and communicate actually what was happening and getting health education across was very difficult. And, and the particular issue is that one of the traditional practices is to wash the bodies of people who have died at funerals. And in fact, dead bodies are secreting the highest amount of virus. So, that, so in fact, it's the most effective situation. 
but it's very difficult to get people to try and change that behaviour and very upsetting as well for people not to be able to wash their loved one. I think it's worse than just washing. They were washing and drinking the water they washed the bodies with, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And it's behaviour that's very difficult to change. And we've heard already about um, how with the plague, that burial was very important in the same way for Ebola. It's the burial practices that were really key. Once you get those changed, that's, that's a big step. What can we do with modern science in the modern era to try to prevent Ebola, but things like Ebola as well, coming back and doing this to us again? It's interesting because when people think of sub-Saharan Africa, they think of, well, now at the moment, obviously they think of Ebola, but they think of other infectious diseases such as HIV, tuberculosis and malaria. And in fact, what the big challenge that sub-Saharan Africa is, is facing now and will face and we don't hear so much about is actually from diseases that are not infectious. So this is the so-called non-communicable diseases. And what I mean by that is diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular diseases and res- respiratory diseases. And in fact, by 2030, it's predicted that the deaths from those diseases will be greater than the deaths that traditionally are the leading causes of death in Africa, such as infectious diseases, um, undernutrition and maternal and perinatal deaths. One of the things that got highlighted, in my view, a bit late in the Ebola story, though, was that along comes this virus and it decimates the healthcare system, which was already pretty feeble. And that meant that there's now nowhere for a woman to go and have a baby with any degree of safety. There's nowhere for anyone to get any treatment whatsoever for a common disease like malaria or a flare-up of TB. So you have one outbreak of one disease that then causes a snowball effect, destroying lots of other lives through other consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, a solution for that is obviously very difficult in these countries, which are very resource-poor and, and do not have... Um, effective health systems. But I think going back to my point about non-communicable diseases, in other African countries, if we don't get a handle on these non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease, then in fact the health systems that are already working are going to be under so much pressure that something like the outbreak we've seen could happen again. What about the world as a whole? Because many people say that there's so many of us on Earth now and we're so mobile that we really are cruising for a biological bruising because we've got up in the air right now around the planet a million people aboard aeroplanes. No city is more than 24 hours from any other city, which is inside the incubation period of of most infectious diseases. So unlike when the Great Black Death plagues were knocking around, people had to go everywhere they were going to go by boat and it took them months. Now you can be on the other side of the world and spreading a disease before you even know you've caught a disease. Yeah, that is something that came up in the media a lot. And in fact, I think during the outbreak, the international community really only got involved when when those concerns came up, which was obviously a a tragedy for the countries involved. But I think that people are always going to want to travel. And these, you know, the way that we live is the way we live, for better or worse. But what we really need to focus on is looking at these, the the burden of disease in these countries. And more and more, that is these non-infectious diseases and looking at research to help handle those so that then we are in a position to help with infectious diseases that emerge. Kevin Wing, thank you very much. One of the factors that has a huge impact on the spread of disease is population density. So the more people you have packed together, the faster disease can spread. And that was one of the big problems with this outbreak of the plague. So I have a little demo here to show you how that works. And it involves cake. 
so I have two cakes here, and they're going to represent our two different kinds of population. On the left-hand cake, there are eight candles, and those represent people. And on that cake, they're very crunched together. They're all up one end of the cake. They're very close together. On the other one, we've got the same number of candles, but they're nicely spread out. Now, what we're going to do is light one candle at each end of the cake, and that's going to represent someone catching a disease. And we're going to watch and see if that disease starts to spread, and if so, in which cake it spreads more quickly. So I've now got one candle lit at each end, and I've just got a fan here, and I'm just very gently fanning the two cakes. So who can see something happening? On the cake where the candles are really bunched up, it's, it's spreading. And on the one where they're spread out, uh, it's not spreading at all. Exactly. So I've now actually got three candles lit on the cake where the candles, which are representing our people, remember, are very closely packed. Because what's happening is as I'm fanning the flames they're sort of moving around a little bit and they're jumping from one person to the next or from one candle to the next. And they're now all lit. Whereas on the other one, I've, which I've just started fanning a bit more because it wasn't doing anything, I've now managed to blow out the first candle, which is quite representative, actually, because if there's one person infected, they're going to either recover or they're going to die. But if there's no one else around them for them to infect, that's where the disease ends. And that cake now has not a single candle lit on it, whereas the other one, where they were close together and the infection could jump from one to the other, they're now all lit. And this is a really interesting demo because not only does it model in the spread of infection, it actually also links very nicely to what we're going to talk about next, which is the Great Fire of London. By the winter of 1665, the plague outbreak had actually started slowing down and many of those who had fled the city began to return. By February 1666, the king returned to London, and although a few cases of plague were still happening, it seemed like the worst of the disaster was over. Official bills put the total number of deaths that had occurred at around 70,000, although some experts estimate that the real total could have been double that. The people of London began to rebuild their lives, but little did they know that another tragedy was just around the corner. On the night of the 2nd of September, 1666, a mistake by Thomas Farriner, a baker in Pudding Lane, would lead to the destruction of huge areas of London. Pepys witnessed the spectacle and wrote about it in his diary. September 2nd, 1666. Some of our maids sitting up late last night called up about three in the morning to tell us of a great fire they saw in the city. By and by, Jane comes and tells me that she hears that above 300 houses have been burned down tonight by the fire we saw and that it is now burning down all Fish Street by London Bridge. So I made myself ready presently and walked to the tower. And there I did see the houses at the end of the bridge all on fire, and an infinite great fire on this and the other side of the bridge. I rode down to the waterside, and there saw a lamentable fire, everybody endeavouring to remove their goods, and flinging into the river or bringing them into lighters that lay off. Poor people staying in their houses as long as till the very fire touched them and then running into boats or clambering from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another. And among the other things, the poor pigeons, I perceive, were loath to leave their houses but hovered about the windows and balconies till they, some of them burned their wings and fell down. Just as infections spread swiftly through the crowded areas, the tightly packed houses in London at the time allowed the fire to travel very rapidly. 
James Campbell is an architect and an architectural historian who studies this period in history. James, can you paint a picture for us of what London would have looked like in that time? Right, you've got to imagine we do have some of these kind of buildings still surviving. Timber frame buildings, uh, they're tall, they're, they're three or four storeys on the big streets and many buildings behind them, tightly packed down small alleyways. And these timber frame buildings have wattle and door, basket weave and plaster as a front. So they will burn extremely easily. How many people would have been living like that? How big was London at the time? Well, it was a lot smaller than modern London. Of course, after the plague, there were many fewer people. But we're talking of a city of about 140,000 in the city and then more in the suburbs. But at this time, the suburbs don't stretch very far. Hampstead is still very much a village in the countryside. Were fires terribly common at that time? Or had had no one really seen a, a disaster on this scale before? There'd never been a disaster on this scale, but fires were common in towns throughout uh, England in this period. But commonly they only destroy 30 or 40 houses, and the only method of firefighting was to pull the houses down in front of the flames. So they had hooks and crowbars and things, and they literally demolished the houses. Was there a fire service? Today we dial 999 if we see a fire. Was there any equivalent then? No, not at all. So it was reliant on small organisations, parishes, to have their own firefighting equipment, and that was part of the big problem, of course. So there was no sort of joined-up system, no one you could rely on to, to come in an emergency? And often, as, as happened in this fire, everybody was so busy saving their own property and running away from the fire that they wouldn't help out anybody else. What was the scale of the damage? We've heard, obviously, Peep saying there were hundreds of houses, but what was the eventual outcome of the fire? It was completely disastrous. So it starts in Thomas Farron's shop. He makes biscuits, of all things, and it catches very quickly. How do we know it started there? Because there's a large court case afterwards, and he admits that it's, it started in his baker's shop, and he clambered out over the roof. Unfortunately, the first casualty of the fire was his maid, who was too afraid to cross the roof and escape. Remarkably, in this fire, which destroyed 13,200 houses and 87 churches, uh, remarkably, only six people died which is extraordinary. And they all fled with what possessions they could carry to the fields around London, and for four days they were camped in tents around London. Isn't that how long it burned for, four days? And it it burnt for four days. They were were still there four days after the fire died down. It just kept burning because it had been a long, hot summer, everything was tinder dry, and there was a nice wind blowing in from across the Thames going westwards. Quite literally a perfect storm, this, wasn't it? Did it make its own weather as well? Because when we've seen examples of fire storms in World War II where lots of ordnance is dropped on a city in Germany, for example, there are classic cases of this, you end up with a fire that's so hot so intense that it's pulling in so much air, it creates an apparent wind that then drives the fire even faster. We don't have descriptions that we can guess that that must have been what was happening. It was certainly extremely hot, and so that it, it, for instance, catches St Paul's Cathedral, which is a big stone building and wasn't expected to burn, just because there are so many tinders and things flying through the air. And it's only stopped, eventually, by the king blowing up a large area of London to the west of it and the weather changing and that means that everything dies down. They create a fire break by literally just just wiping out all the potential fuel. They blow it up, and they have done the same thing around the Tower of London, and this just creates an enormous fire break. How enormous? A 100-metre-wide fire break, approximately. There's a lot of houses, isn't it? And all these people who end up camped out in the fields, what happened to them? 
Remarkably, they found lodgings in the next few days, but then, of course, they had to rebuild. And when we were talking about this overcrowding, this is then when this problem is solved. Firstly, of course, because nobody is living in the city at all for several years. It's it really the building isn't completed till about 1672, so you've got quite a long stretch where there's very few people moving back into the city. And then by new building regulations, which change the way they build. So gone are the higgledy-biggledy timber structures, which are cantilevering over the road, so they jetty out and they almost meet in the middle. You can imagine how good that was for spreading disease and also for fire. And now you can only build straight, upright brick buildings with no exposed timber work. So they get the city which we're so used to with rectangular windows and brick arches. This, so this is the origin of the building regulations that plague us today. It's the Great Fire of London to thank for that. Uh, if you think of building regulations as a plague, Chris, yes. Yes, that's true. This is the origin of the, of the brick-built city. It's not a hygienic city. The, the sewers and things will come much later. But it's a city where they get away from the overcrowding in the back alleys because they say you can't build very high in back alleys. You can only build high on big, wide streets. And the narrower the street, the lower you can build, and everything must be in brick. You said that it sorted out a lot of the problems but didn't sort out all of them. There was quite a notable exception of the sewer situation. So what was life like in London post-fire before the sewers came along? Well, the water came out of the Thames or it came out of streams running down, or it came out of wells. The problem is your sewage went into pits or tanks behind your property, and then it was emptied out periodically by people who were employed to do that. Of course, you had basements, that was one thing that came in, and so very often these pits which held the sewage would leak into the basements, so you could get whole basements full of sewage. And not to mention, of course, also into the water supply, uh, which is why in the 17th century most people drank beer to avoid poisoning from water. It's really only in the 19th century when the sewage problem gets dealt with in London because the sewage is also going into the Thames. So your water's coming partly from the Thames, your sewage is going into the Thames, and so, as you can imagine, it's, it's a source of disease. I suppose we exchanged one plague... For another, didn't we? Because then that meant things like cholera became much more common. Is, is it a myth that the Great Fire wiped out the plague? Is that true or is that just apocryphal? The plague had already died down by the time the fire hit. But there is no doubt that if you wanted to completely destroy any vestiges of rats or fleas or anything else, then the Great Fire really did it because it completely flattened everything. And it kept smouldering for weeks, although it started to rain at long last, and that gradually put the embers out. So people wandering around the city in the days afterwards describe this terrible wasteland of still-burning buildings. James Campbell from Cambridge University, thank you very much. that the Great Fire started in a bakery, and modern bakeries are still surprisingly dangerous places to work. So while open fires are less of a problem, the products they work with, like flour and icing sugar, can actually be a danger in themselves. And that's because finely ground substances combust or burn at a much lower temperature than they would if they weren't so finely ground, because they're so mixed with the air. And of course, oxygen is one of the things that you need in order to set something on fire. In fact, with some substances, the spark you get when taking off a jumper caused by static can be enough to ignite them if they're suspended in the air. 
And this is still a problem. In 2008, an explosion occurred in a sugar refinery in Georgia, and there was another in 2010 in a flour mill in Illinois because of these substances suspended in the air, catching fire and burning. Now, I'm going to cause a little fire of my own to show you just how flammable these substances are. Hopefully, it won't be quite as dramatic as the Great Fire of London. I won't burn down all of Cambridge. The first thing I have to do is light my blowtorch. I've got my blowtorch. We've got a nice flame coming out of the top. Now, what I've got here is a rubber tube and on the end of it is a little kind of container and what I'm going to do is put some corn flour in that container and then I'm going to blow down the tube and that's going to cause a cloud of corn flour to go into the air. I'm going to direct that under where the flame is and we're going to see whether it combusts. So I've put a teaspoon of corn flour in my container and I'm going to blow down the pipe. Do you want to count me down? Okay, ready? Three, two, one. Oh! So when I blew that cloud of cornflower into the air, you got what looks like a kind of fireball coming out of the top of the blowtorch. You got this big kind of ball of flame. And that just shows there wasn't actually that much fuel in that. It was only a teaspoon or two of cornflour. But because it's so well mixed with the air, it catches fire really, really easily. And that's the same thing that can happen in um, bakeries and factories working with these kind of powdered substances. And that's why they have to be really, really careful. Ginny, thank you very much. And that's all we have time for. Thank you very much to Michelle Wallace, Luke Bedford, Julian Parkhill, Kevin Wing, James Campbell and Ginny Smith. Do join us next week as well when we're going to be looking at the past, present and future of the atomic clock and hearing what time really means. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Yes, I'm all set here. The Space Boffins podcast is an Eileen Collins special, an interview with the pioneering test pilot who became an astronaut and the first female commander of NASA's space shuttle. She explains what it's like to fly the shuttle and to pilot the first mission after the Columbia shuttle exploded. So join me, Sue Nelson, with Eileen Collins on the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have many episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums.
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.